Hey, it is Miss Katen, and this is the episode for Chapter 4, the last chapter in Section 1 of Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism, and You by Jason Reynolds. Let's get started. Chapter 4, A Racist Wonderkind. Remember John Cotton and Richard Mather, the Puritans who got the American race ball rolling? Well, turns out they had a grandson. Well, not the two of them together, obviously, but Richard Mather's wife dies. John Cotton dies. Richard Mather marries John Cotton's widow, Sarah. Richard Mather's youngest son, Increase, marries Sarah's daughter, Maria, making her his wife and stepsister. Um, Increase and Maria have a son, February 12, 1663. They name him after both families. Cotton and Mather becomes Cotton Mather. By the time Cotton Mather heard about Bacon's rebellion, he was already in college. An 11-year-old Harvard student, the youngest of all time. He was obviously a nerd, and on top of all that, he was extremely religious. He knew he was special, or at least meant to be, which of course did nothing but fill his fellow classmates with spite. They wanted desperately to break him down, make him sin, because no one likes a show-off. Basically, Cotton Mather was obsessed with being perfect and blamed himself for everything wrong or different with him, believing even his stutter, with which he struggled, was due to something sinful he'd done. Because he was so insecure about his speech impediment, Cotton Mather took to writing, and eventually he would write more sermons than any other Puritan in history. By the time he graduated from Harvard, he'd overcome his stutter which to him was, of course, a deliverance from God. Being delivered from his stutter was a good thing because he was destined for the pulpit. The grandson of two Puritan preachers had to grow up to be one, no other choice. And there was no better way to begin his career as a clergyman than for him to co-pastor his father's, also a preacher, church. But while he was avoiding his bullies at Harvard, trying to use his words and doing anything he could to walk a righteous path in the eyes of God, there was a tension brewing in New Orleans and New England, excuse me, and quote unquote old England. In 1676, an English colonial administrator, Edward Randolph, had journeyed to New England to see the damage done by Metacomet the indigenous war hero, and his warriors. Randolph reported this back to King Charles II and suggested they tighten the grip around New England because clearly the New World experiment wasn't going so well. So now Big Brother was threatening to step in and clean up Little Brother's mess, which meant Massachusetts would lose local rule if it didn't defy the king. Of course, the other option was for the colonists to just fall in line, but that would mean giving up everything they'd worked to build. Defiance seemed like a stronger play, and in 1689, New Englanders did just that. 
The thing about revolution is that it almost always has to do with poor people angry about being manipulated by the rich. So, Cotton Mather, though a recent graduate of Harvard and a God-fearing, sermonizing, well-read man, had a problem on his hands because he was rich. He'd come from an elite family, gotten an elite education, and lived an elite, though pious, life far from the planters and even farther from the slaves. So the revolution of 1688, which was called the Glorious Revolution, was not so glorious for him. And fearing that the anger that caused the uprising would go from the British elites to the elites right at home, meaning him, he created a new villain as a distraction, an invisible demon. Cue the scary music. Mather wrote a book called Memorable Providences, relating to witchcrafts and possessions. That's right, Cotton Mather, the genius boy, destined for intellectual and spiritual greatness, was obsessed with witches. And this obsession would set a fire he couldn't have seen coming, but welcomed as the will of God. Mather's book, outlining the symptoms of witchcraft, reflected his crusade against the enemies of white souls. His father was just as obsessed, but no one poured gasoline on the witchy fire like a minister in Salem, Massachusetts, named Samuel Paris. In 1692, when Paris's nine-year-old daughter suffered convulsions and chokes, he believed she'd been possessed or cursed by a witch. That was all it took the witch hunt began. Over the next few months, as bewitching instances continued to happen, people continued to be accused of witchcraft, which, luckily for folks like Cotton Mather, turned attention away from the political and onto the religious. And in nearly every instance, quote-unquote, the devil, who was preying upon innocent white Puritans, was described as black. Of course. One Puritan accuser described the devil as, quote, a little black bearded man. Another saw, quote, a black thing of a considerable bigness. A black thing jumped in one man's window. Quote, the body was like that of a monkey. The observer added, quote, the feet feel like a rooster's, but the face much like a man's. Since the devil represented criminality, and since criminals in New England were said to be the devil's minions, the Salem witch hunt made the black face of the face of criminality. It was like racist algebra. Solve for X. Solve for white. Solve for anything other than truth. Once the witch hunt eventually died down, the Massachusetts authorities apologized to the accused, reversed the convictions of the trials, and provided reparations in the early 1700s. But Cotton Mather never stopped defending the Salem Rich Witch Trials because he never stopped defending the religious, slaveholding, gender, class, and racial hierarchies reinforced by the trials. He saw himself as the defender of God's law, and the crucifier of any non-Puritan, African, 
Native American, poor person, or woman who defied God's law by not submitting to it. And just as it went with the theorists who came before him, the racist children of Zarara, Cotton Mather's ideas and writings spread from Massachusetts throughout the land. This was just as two other things were happening. Boston was becoming the intellectual capital of the new America, and tobacco was taking off, booming, which meant more slaves were needed in order to manage it. As the population of enslaved people grew, which is what slaveholders needed in order to till the land and grow the tobacco for free, the fear of more revolt grew with it. Seems like a natural fear in response to such an unnatural system. So, in order to keep their human property from rising up, slaveholders and politicians created a new unnatural system, a new set of racist codes. One, no interracial relationships. Two, tax imported captives. Three, classify natives and blacks the same way you would horses and hogs in the tax code, meaning they were literally classified as livestock and not as human. Four, blacks can't hold office. Five, all property owned by a slave is sold which of course contributes to black poverty. Six, oh, and white indentured servants who were freed are awarded 50 acres of property, of course, contributing to white prosperity. And while all this was going on, all this systemic knife turning, all this racist political play, all the violence and discrimination, Cotton Mather, all high and mighty, was still trying to convince people that the only thing necessary, the only mission of slavery, had to be to save the souls of the slaves, because through that salvation, the enslaved would in turn be whitened, purified. Enslavers became more open to these ideas over time, right up until the First Great Awakening, which swept through the colonies in the 1730s spearheaded by a Connecticut man named Jonathan Edwards. Edwards, whose father had studied under Increase Mather, was a direct descendant of the Mather's Puritan thought. He spoke about human equality in soul and the capability of everyone for conversion. And as this racist Christian awakening continued to evolve, as people like Edwards carried on the torch of torture, Cotton Mather continued to age. In 1728, on his 65th birthday, he called his church's pastor into the room for prayer. The next day, Cotton Mather, one of New England's greatest God-fearing scholars, was dead. But you know how death is. Your body goes, but your ideas don't. Your impact lingers on, even when it's poisonous. Some bodies get put into the ground and daisies bloom. Others encourage the sprouting of weeds, weeds that work to strangle whatever's living and growing around them. <laughs>